Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with my buddy Steve Peralt from Inside the Monster, of course. Great Red Sox podcast. Steve's really great on the Sox. So we'll get into this year's team. And also, I want to rank the World Series teams from the Red Sox in terms of which team we think was the best to the worst. And I were saying the worst, but it's like the worst team that won a World Series out of that group. And then we'll rank them in terms of our favorites as well, because those teams are all very entertaining, but some more than others. So we'll get into that with Steve in just a little bit. So I do want to do this first, the trifecta. So I'll get to the other three teams. I'll get to the Bs. I got to take on them. I get something on the Celtics. I want to get back into our pre-All-Star break grades. We'll get to Jalen Brown in just a second here. And something on the Patriots, because it was interesting. Albert Breer this week from Sports Illustrated was on the Sports Hub, and he was talking about Mac Jones. And he had this to say, I don't think Bill appreciated the way that Mac handled some of the stuff last year. There is a way that I think Bill thinks a franchise quarterback should conduct himself. And for the most part, Brady did conduct himself that way. I think there were certain things in the way that Mac handled the second year as a pro that Bill didn't appreciate. I don't know if the Raiders are in love with Mac. Like, if you're talking about getting their first round pick, if that's happening internally, I don't know if they see this massive gap between Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi. I'm not saying they think Bailey's as good as Mac, but there was some element of Bailey doing what he was coached to do last year. And I think that gave Bailey... The edge to some degree there for a little while. Okay, so this is interesting. Basically, Albert Brewer saying, would the Patriots essentially trade Mac Jones? Okay, and obviously the connection that he brings up with the Raiders is because of Josh McDaniels. Of course, Josh coached him his first year here. But a lot of meat on the bone here with this Mac stuff. So let's first get to the part where he talks about Bill being frustrated with some of the stuff Mac did as it pertains to how Mac handled himself, right? And we've gone through this. I hated how Mac handled a lot of the stuff last year. And I said it at the time. 
we could understand the frustration and the aggravation with Matt Patricia, right? But it got to the point where he was constantly sort of showing up Matt Patricia in the coaching staff, right? You had a bunch of times where Mac was going at Matty P, right? Like remember against the Bills where he's on the sideline and it got caught on camera where he says, throw the fucking ball, fucking quick game sucks to, to Matt Patricia. There was another game too, remember where Mac's just like staring at Matt Patricia, doesn't want any part of him whatsoever. And we saw it on multiple occasions, him yelling at him on the sideline, jumping up and down on the field. Like some of the behavior was sort of immature, right? So what we would find out, though, is we kind of knew like that there was issues there, but they were illuminated in that Herald piece from Andrew Callahan and Karen Gregan, what, about a month ago now, some of the reasons for Max frustration, right? They had meetings where the players would ask the coaching staff, hey, if the defense does this, what do we do? And they didn't have answers, right? So you can understand why Mac was sort of upset at times. They completely removed the play action game. Remember, he was north of 26% of the time in terms of his dropbacks at a play action as a rookie. That went down to 16%. So Mac had reasons to be upset. He felt like clearly he wasn't being coached properly and the team wasn't being fully prepared for games, right? That has to be the worst feeling as a quarterback, knowing you're going into the game and the guy calling the plays cannot do the job, right? So we get why Mac Jones was mad, but he just has to handle those things more professionally going forward. And look, this probably will not be an issue in the future in terms of Mac showing up to coaching staff because now they have a competent offensive coordinator in Bill O'Brien. So you look at it and you say, okay, this is a young guy, 24 years old, that got too emotional and showed his frustration a little bit too much. It was not a good look for Mac, but I have to imagine he learned from this too, right? Where you're the quarterback of the team. By default, you're a leader of the team. You can't be losing your mind on the field because you're the guy that's in charge of everything. If you're losing your mind, the rest of the team is going to lose their mind, right? So now that's why I'm like, okay, I can understand where Mac was coming from with the frustration, but he's got to just relax a little bit there when he's out in the field. And I can see why Belichick would be really upset with this just because of, you know, Bill's relationship with Matt Patricia, but also he doesn't want a player acting that way on the field. But I just chalked that up to, let's just try to forget about what happened with Mac Jones in terms of the outburst last year, and let's judge him when he has a real professional offensive coordinator next year. Okay, now I want to get to the actual trade part that Breer brings up, because he mentioned that the Patriots may not see a massive gap between Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi. So he also mentioned that Mac's issues on the field, right? Like showing up to coaching staff and there was an understanding, according to Breer, like Zappi was doing what the coaches asked him to do, right? But that to me was always going to be the case, right? Because Zappi's a fourth round pick from Western Kentucky. Mac was a first round pick from Alabama who had a really good rookie season. Zappi's just glad to be out there, right? And remember what Zappi, like this is... Crazy, like they actually coached well in those games offensively. Like it it seems crazy to say, but they did. Remember, he comes in for that Packers game, but then he gets the Lions and the Browns. So sort of soft landings too. like the Lions, good offense, but terrible defense. Of course, they were 30th in drop back EPA on defense last year. Easy team to throw the football against. And in those games, they shockingly schemed it up for Bailey Zappi, right? Where they never really schemed it up for Mac this year. His aggressiveness rating, Bailey Zappi, in that week five game, where basically that just measures how often you're throwing into tight windows, which means the closest defender is a yard or less away, 4.8% in week five. That means he had one tight window throw in the entire game, the entire game, right? And so you also look at the fact that for him, 26.3% of his passing attempts came out of play action, right? That would have ranked in the upper half of the league this past season. Mac was 39th out of 41 qualifiers in dropback percentage with play action. 
So with Zappi, yeah, he wasn't going to be a problem. He wasn't going to talk back to the coaching staff or show up to coaching staff because, first of all, he's just getting an opportunity in the NFL. And secondarily, it was actually going well for Bailey Zappi when he's on the field because partially they were playing against bad defenses. But secondarily, they actually coached pretty well in those games, shockingly, right? So he's definitely a, a nice find is Bailey Zappi, especially for the backup that you have right now. But his job, we do have to be fair to Mac when we look at Bailey Zappi's job. His job this past season in the short amount of time he was out there was much easier than Mac Jones's job. Now, I can understand their belief where Breer is essentially pointing out where they don't see a massive gap. I can understand that from like a talent perspective, but Mac is a more talented guy. I'm not saying that, but I can understand where they would say like the gap isn't as wide as maybe people would think a first round pick from Alabama and a fourth round pick from Western Kentucky. But the idea of trading Mac Jones, which Albert Breer brought up there in that interview that he did, is it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't really understand why the Patriots would entertain this, because first of all, his value is at its nadir, right? After his rookie season, yeah, there would be takers for Mac Jones because he had a pretty good season. But this past season, 20th in passing yards per game, 214, passer rating 84.826th. Interception percentage, 2.5%, 23rd. Touchdown percentage, 3.2%, 29th. Why would anybody give up anything significant for Mac Jones, right? So I just look at it like, who's giving up a first-round pick for him? Nobody. So I don't understand why the Patriots would even consider trading him. Like, the Raiders, if you're looking at the Raiders, like the team that was brought up there, it's a proven commodity like Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be out there, right? Where you know he's pretty good, and then... There's also the Aaron Rodgers guy. Like if you're Josh McDaniels, those are the guys you're looking at. And if you are going to go with a young quarterback, wouldn't you go after a guy like you have the seventh pick in the draft, either move up or wait, see if Levis is there. Like it doesn't make any sense to me that you would trade for a guy that's already two years into that rookie contract, entering his third year on that deal when you want to get your own guy in there. And I understand the connection with Josh McDaniels, but it just doesn't really make sense to me right now. And from my perspective, trading Mac would be a brutal look for Belichick, right? Doesn't that just immediately say, hey, we're wrong. (laughs) You admitted you failed in the draft just two years ago. And like if you go back to training camp, Bill was just talking about how much Mac had improved. I get this season did not go well for the team or Mac Jones, but Bill even acknowledged that his poor decision by moving Matt Patricia out of the offensive coordinator position, right? He acknowledged like he brutally fucked that up by bringing in Bill O'Brien. So I think if anything... Belichick wants to be proven correct with Mac Jones too, right? You would think, I mean, the guy's incredibly stubborn because if you don't get something out of Mac Jones, doesn't it make your post Tom Brady thing look even worse? Because the original plan was Hoyer and Stidham. Okay. And then Cam Newton became available and nobody else was taking Cam Newton. So you went after Cam Newton. And then if the hypothetical is you're going to move on from Mac after two years, then it's like, oh, and we failed with our first round quarterback. So we had Cam Newton, we had the original plan, Hoyer and Stidham, and then we failed with the rookie quarterback. It just, to me, it doesn't add up, right? And look, I've told you, I don't believe Mac can ever be an upper echelon quarterback in this league. I don't think he has that level of talent, but I think he can at least be a solid starter if things are set up around him. And part of bringing in Bill O'Brien is for Mac Jones, right? They're going to play to his strengths, heavy RPO game, play action game, try to scheme it up for Mac, unlike last year. So look, if he's bad with Bill O'Brien next season, well, then you have a problem. But the idea of even entertaining trading Mac right now, to me, it seems crazy. I just wouldn't do it just for like, I'm not saying that Mac Jones is the next great Patriots quarterback, but why would you trade him now? I just don't understand the logic behind any of that whatsoever. All right. So number two, I wanted to get to back to my 
pre-All-Star break grades. And I'll go to Jalen Brown here in a second. Oh, before I do that, though, I wish I got excited for like All-Star Saturday in the NBA because I used to when I was growing up. So Mac McClung last night, that guy was awesome. And that first night he had was ridiculous. After jumping over the guys, I don't know how he has the ability to hit the ball off the backboard and then dunk it. Like, that was ridiculous. Then he had that 540. I mean, he was awesome. But that guy Jericho Sims from the Knicks, that guy was an embarrassment. He tried to do the Vince Carter thing twice, like on back-to-back dunks. Like, okay, one time you're using one arm, the other time you're using two arms, where basically you try to like get up to your elbow in the rim. Like, I don't say it wasn't that good the first time. I don't know why he kept doing it. But like McClung was awesome. I just wish you had star level players, right? Like you're going into that last night and you're saying, oh, it's Jericho Sims, Trey Murphy, Mac McClung was basically a G-leaguer and Kenyon Martin's kid. Like that's not getting anybody excited whatsoever. You need some level of star power. Now, Maybe this McClung thing will be like big. Like I have to imagine he's going to be back next year. So maybe people will be excited to watch it. But I give the kid a ton of credit he delivered. I just need more stars in the dunk contest. Like Kobe did it. Michael Jordan did it. You had Dominique back in the day doing it. As we mentioned, Vince Carter did it. Like I just wish you had more star power there. But I think guys are afraid to do it now. Like really LeBron never doing it was something that he promised the fans he was going to do. Remember, he said, I'm putting my name in the hat, and he never did it, which is just unfortunate. Okay, so let me get to Jalen Brown, his pre-All-Star break grade. I'll give him a B plus. And I want it to go A, but it's tough for me to ignore some of the numbers, like when Jalen's not in the court. So if you look at the Celtics this year, they're now 9-2 and two without Jalen Brown. Think about this. this. is an All-Star level player, has an opportunity maybe to make an All-NBA team, and he's the second best player on the the Celtics, and they're 9-2 and two without him. And the Celtics' offense, and actually the defense, they're both better statistically with Jalen off the floor. And they're still really good with Jalen on the floor, too, the numbers. But you have a 4.7 net rating with Jalen on. That means you're outscoring teams by 4.7 points per 100 possessions with Jalen on the court. When he's off the court, that number goes up to 7.9. It's crazy, right? And remember, we mentioned with Tatum the other day, with Tatum, when he's on the court, the Celtics are outscoring teams by plus 9.3 points per 100 possessions. When he's off, he's at, the Celtics are at negative 2.2. So with Jalen, yeah, you're still outscoring teams by almost five points per 100 possessions. But when he's off the court, that number's almost at eight, right? And look, if you look at the numbers in terms of Jalen without Jason Tatum on the court, the offense dips to 113, 113 points per 100 possessions. That would rank around 20th in the NBA. Tatum without Jalen Brown on the court, that number's at 123.9. So we're talking about six points better than the best team in the league when Jalen Brown's off the court and Jason Tatum's on the court, right? So in total, the Celtics have been outscored with Jalen or the Celtics have been outscored with Jalen on the court and Tatum off the court too. Like when Jalen Brown is on the court by himself without Jason Tatum, they've been outscored, which is kind of crazy to think about, right? And that's 511 minutes. So look, I also like with Jalen, I can't ignore, like I think some of the reason this happens is the ball stopping nature of how he plays. The assists per 100 possessions with Jalen on, 25.4. That would be about 13th in the NBA. With Jalen off the court, 27.9 assists per 100 possessions. That would be third in the NBA. So elite passing team with Jalen off the court. So you go from an elite passing team, essentially, to one that is slightly above average. And then there is the assist to turnover ratio with Jalen this year. It's the worst it's been over the past three seasons where he became a high usage player. He's at 1.06. That's last among players with a usage rate over 28%. So... Not a lot of assists for the amount of turnovers that Jalen Brown has. So the team being worse statistically, the assist to turnover ratio getting worse forces me to drop him out of that A range, right? Like I can't ignore all this stuff that's in front of me. I can't give him an A because of that, right? 
But I will say, like, I love Jalen Brown. Like, this is not meant to be an indictment on Jalen Brown. I just want to be a fair grader here. So because Jalen has improved in a lot of areas, you have to give him a ton of credit, right? I mean, he's shooting a career-high 48.7% from the field. Outstanding. He's averaging 26.5 points per game, up from 23.6. He's averaging a career-high in rebounds at 7.0. And just to be clear, all those numbers would be up if you just take the per 36 Because you say, well, his minutes are up. That's why he's scoring more points. But if you just took the per 36, it'd be career highs and all these as well. He's also shooting a career high 58.2% on two-point shots. If you take the players with at least 550 attempts, that would rank behind only Sabonis, Jokic, Mobley, Aiton, LeBron, and Luka. Durant doesn't qualify, doesn't have enough shots. But basically just behind LeBron and Luka among non-centers in terms of his two-point shooting. He's been outstanding. His shot making is great. The mid-range numbers continue to be tremendous. He's at 51%. Only Durant is better of players that have taken at least 150. So shot making is outstanding, and we know the importance of that in the playoffs. You look at the pull-up twos. I've referenced Jalen's pull-up game before, but it's even better than I thought. He's 94 of 188 on pull-up twos. That's 50%. I mean, that is insane. So that pull-up game, he can get to that whenever he wants. And again, that comes back to the playoffs. But now because of the two-point shooting, Jalen has improved a ton as a pick-and-roll operator. Now, for Jalen, it's about scoring, right, in the pick-and-roll. He's not a great passer, but it's like, how can he get an advantage in the pick-and-roll? And because his shooting is so good, he can get the screen, he can get right into a shot, or he can just get going downhill. So this season, he's in the 84th percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler. 74 of 154, 48.1%. And that's up. Last year, he was in the 65th percentile, 44.7%. So that is a significant jump, especially going from the 65th percentile to the 84th percentile. So he was a good pick and roll scorer last year. Now he's elite when it comes to that particular category. And then there's Jalen, his athleticism. He's using that a lot more. And we see that in transition, right? So Jalen is up to 7.3 transition points per game. That's the fourth most in the NBA. So he is killing teams in transition. He was at 5.0 last season. So you're up 2.3 a game. A huge difference. So he's getting easy buckets that way and attacking once he gets there, right? Like once he gets the ball in transition, he is getting to the basket. And that's something Joe Mazzula has emphasized as well with this team, where they have been a much better running team this season. So all in all, like I know I gave you the outlying numbers that aren't great with Jalen in terms of the on-off numbers. But the shot making has been tremendous. He's getting out in transition more. He's been devastating in terms of his pull up game. So Jalen's having an outstanding season. I didn't mean to like reference all those numbers and say, oh, Jalen Brown's not having a good year. No, he's having a really good season. I just can't put him in the A range. I'd give him a B plus based on some of the numbers there. I mean, you compare those numbers with Tatum, it's night and day. All right. Last thing I wanted to get to is the Bruins because they hammer the Predators in Nashville on Thursday night, 5 nothing. I was actually a bit worried about that game because remember, that was when they had their siblings with them, and they were in Nashville. So they were in Nashville the night before. I'm thinking, okay, probably going to be a little hungover for this game, right? If you're in Nashville the night before you're playing the Predators, I mean, that's a great place to go. And Marshawn's brother was crazy. He was, like, doing pull-ups and stuff after the game. So I thought that was, like, a cool thing for them. And by the way, the over-under in that game was five in terms of the goals. Or, excuse me, five and a half. They finished with five. Somebody may have been on the over five and a half. Okay, especially after the... Second period, it's 4 nothing. I'm like, this is a complete lock. And then because the Predators are obviously down 5 nothing, there's no point in pulling the goalie so the Bees don't get an opportunity for an empty netter. But anyway, that's a side note. All right. Then Saturday, they beat down on the Islanders 6-2 to at the Garden. So after losing 4-5, or they've now ripped off three in a row, starting with that Dallas game. And 
In the game on Saturday, you get Jake DeBrus back. And what does he do? He scores in the power play, right? First game back, he scores in the power play. And they had sort of been rotating guys up on that first line with Bergeron and Marshawn and just massive to get Jake DeBrus back. Because remember, he's having his best season. He was on a 66-point pace if he had played 77 games the same amount as last year. So you look at his career high, 42 points. He was on pace for 66, which is just a massive jump for DeBrusque. And by the way, a power play goal for the first time in forever. Like the Bruins had been 0 for their previous 20 and the past two games against, of course, the Nashville game they scored in the power play and then they scored Saturday on the power play. Before that, they were 0 for 20. So it's good to see the power play getting back at it as well. And look, on the other side of that game, you see Bo Horvat, who of course was the big guy that got traded to the Islanders. He's without a point in his last three games with the Islanders. And they're clinging right now to that final wild card spot. Washington and Florida are right there. And I believe Florida is a better team. I'm sure a lot of you do as well. And I get they gave him this eight-year extension once they traded for him. So it's a long-term thing. But when you make a trade like that for a guy like Bo Horvat, you're <laughs> assuming you're going to make it into the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? And now they are really going to have to battle just to get in. And you look at what they gave up for him. Their top prospect and a first rounder. And that pick is top 12 protected this year. And then it becomes unprotected. But at the time of the trade, he was at 54 points, career high 61. He was already at a career high in goals as well. So when you look at it, at least from a Bruins perspective this year, he isn't going to hurt them, which is the good thing, right? Because a lot of Bruins fans, I know you were mad they didn't get Bo Horvat. Well, here's the thing. He's not going to hurt you this year in the postseason for sure. And he obviously would have been a nice add to this team. But that's a lot to give up for a guy, especially considering the fact that there's no guarantee like Bergeron and Krejci are retiring. I know we always say that, but there's no guarantee. And you got to get the deal done with Pasternak as well. So I am glad that he ended up on a team like the Islanders and not a team like, say, the Lightning. Like that that would have been hell for the Bruins. OK, so I also want to get to this. So after that win on Saturday, the Bees are now back on pace for 62 wins and 132 points. So both those would tie the record in the NHL. And I'm at the point now where I want to see it happen. Don't you? I mean, like, we've had conversations about this, and I chatted with Sean McDonough about this last week. We know the history of the President's Cup trophy, right? The last team to win the President's Cup trophy and the Stanley Cup, you got to go back to 2013 with the Blackhawks when they were just rolling. That was a dynasty. The Red Wings in 2008. Before that, the Red Wings in 02 and the Avalanche in 01. So recent history, the team that wins the President Cup trophy doesn't ordinarily win the Stanley Cup, right? Like This is not new information. We've known this for years, right? So the history is not good, but the Bruins are going to win the President's Cup trophy anyway. Like no matter what, you look at them right now, nobody's catching them. There's seven points in front of Carolina. So the fact that you already know you're going to win the President's Cup trophy you're never going to get an opportunity like this again to go for the wins record and to go for the points record. I just want to see them go for it, man. And look, I don't think Jim Montgomery, he's mentioned he's not going to be like resting guys down the stretch of the season. So I just want to see him go for it. I feel like down the stretch of the season, this will be must-see TV. Like think about the final five to six games of the season. Everybody's going to be watching this. This is not going to just be a local story. This is going to be a national story. And you don't get a ton of national stories in terms of the NHL, in terms of like ESPN talking about the NHL a lot or anybody talking about the NHL a lot. Like the ESPN has the NHL and a lot of the games aren't even on the channel. You have to go to ESPN Plus to be able to watch them. So I really do think that if the Bruins are chasing this down, this will be like a massive story nationally, which I think would be incredibly cool for the team, too, because other people outside of the market would learn more about the Bruins players. Like, I just think it would be exciting and fuck it. It's history. Just go for it. Like you always remember this. So I really hope they go for it. I really hope they get it. I cannot wait to see how this season 
ends for the Bruins. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with my buddy Steve Pralt from the Inside the Monster podcast. So we'll get into some socks with Steve in just a second here. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Inside the Monster, it is Steve Peralt. Steve, what's going on? And I didn't really mean you're like literally inside the monster right now, inside the monster's name of your podcast. I guess I should clarify that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, technically, it's ITM podcast now for naming and rights reasons. So that's we could be interestingly tasty mayo. That could be the podcast name. So it, it really doesn't matter. But no, I'm I'm happy to be on here, Brian. I uh, it's been a while. When's the last time that we've like done would have been some EEI radio, right? That would have been the last time we've done some socks talk together. Yeah, probably like more than a year ago now. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, it would have been 21. It would have been during like when it was fun. Remember that? Yeah. Remember when the Red Sox were fun to watch and, and talk about? But um, hey, I'm I'm being cautiously optimistic about this year. So we'll, we'll see how things go here. But yeah, I'm glad to be on here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Well, by the way, so I, I think it's going to be interesting, too. I think they're going to be better than people think. I guess that's cliche to say, but I think they're going to go over in their over under in terms of wins. But hey, before we get into the socks, I know you're a big sn- sneaker guy. You get the ballpark kicks. People are tweeting mm. you all the time. Kicks in them. their sneakers at baseball games all the time. So I got to ask, I mean, Jason Tatum, he drops his shoes. We see him on Instagram today. Your thoughts as like a sneakerhead? Uh, they're terrible. They're, they're terrible. Yeah, I, I really. Well, this isn't a super hot take. I think a lot of people don't like these kicks. The unfortunate <laughs> part, two things. I'll start with this. It sucks because they got leaked like two months ago and it, Tatum was getting roasted. He was getting absolutely destroyed uh, on the Twitter sphere. And his reaction in the post games they were playing that night was like, everybody calm down. Those aren't the kicks like, you know, it's those aren't them. And you got to think his team behind the scenes is like, what is going on? We're getting destroyed. These are the kicks. How do we buy time before we release them? Very clear now that they were going for the all star release. So they had to, you know, he had to try to make sure everyone was, you know, waiting for the the real release to come out. And now it happens on all star Sunday. But there's no green colorway. I don't understand how you can drop four colorways of the sneakers and there's no green pair. That's Um, a good point. the, The Jordan sneakers in general, too. Uh, for Luca, for all these guys that they've made signature athletes, Zion, they, all of them suck. Like they're not. I, I'm obsessed <laughs> with sneakers, and I haven't gotten as many pairs recently because I don't have anywhere to put them anymore. But if I'm a sneakerhead, which I am, a huge sneakerhead, and Jason Tatum's my favorite player on the Celtics, which is wow, breaking news. That's favorite player for everybody, and I don't have an ounce of me that wants to buy these sneakers. You've failed. Like that. That's a mega fail by Jordan Brand. <laughs> And I think a lot of people would probably agree. So I'm a little pissed off. They look like the Kmart ones, man. They they really just look like knockoff Jordans. They don't look like real Jordans. And it sucks because, like, I love Tatum. And, you know, he has a damn good chance of bringing them a title this year. And I just hate these shoes so much. So it's like <laughs> I wanted to love these is what I'm saying and wasn't able to. Yeah. So I'll lean on you for the sneaker stuff because I don't know. I, I I just wear I wear like the same. I wear Vans like all the time and I wear like my gym sneakers like that's pretty much it. I, I do not have like sneaker game if that's if that's I, I never it. saw you posting ballpark kicks, unfortunately, because they no. would have got a retweet Im- immediately. But no, I, I know Barrett's not the ballpark kicks guy. But yeah, the Tatum ones, they're they're not great. I mean, they are. They're the first signature shoe he's had. So hopefully their team learns from this and comes back with a better shoe the second time around. Yeah, we can only hope we, for your case, Steve, so you can like actually get them. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully number two for Tatum will make you buy a pair. All yeah, right. We'll so see. I want to get to the socks here. So Friday afternoon, like, you know, on social media is always looking on Twitter and I see Brian Bale forearm tightness. And I'm like, oh, great. This is not good. And I hear Cora today where he said and we're recording on Sunday. So 
We'll know more on Monday, and you may hear this when we know more. But he says he'll be ready for tomorrow. He's feeling better, obviously, until he throws. We're not going to know. So this does sound better. But, Steve, this was like one of my number one things. Probably my number one thing I'm most looking forward to this season is watching Brian Bayo in the rotation to begin the season. I mean, you look at some of the outlying numbers last year, like ground balls through the roof, 55.7%, only Two guys were higher than that. You look at the launch angle, it's 5.3 degrees, which just means everything is on the ground against this guy. And some of like the raw numbers are bad for Bale, but then you look at like some of the expected stuff, it was really good. And the big thing is the guy's stuff is electric. I mean, the changeup is filthy. The sinker is filthy. And like the presence, right? Like on the mound where he's got a lot of swagger out there. He's very confident. We saw him working out with Pedro in the offseason. Like I'm just all in on the Brian Bale thing this year. So I'm hoping that this isn't anything serious, but are you with me in terms of like, this is one of your number one things to watch this year? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I also don't want to act like, you know, I'm flipping out over this news this early in spring training. I, we got to catch ourselves sometimes because we've had no player news to go off of for months. And then the yeah. second we get some, we're like, oh God, the season's over. And it's not <laughs> even like the start of May yet. Um, So I, I just think, you know, at, at this point right now, it wasn't, you don't want to hear this news that is similar with Pavetta, right? where apparently he's got an illness and Sox Twitter was going nuts because they're like, oh, my God, he was taken off by the trainer. So I don't want to flip out about every little thing. But to your point, Brian, with Brian Bayo, they need him to be good. They don't have yeah. the luxury of being able to have him, you know, rehab or make sure he gets right or, or take some time in Worcester to fine tune some things. They don't have that luxury. So if there's anybody in this rotation that, I don't want to hear any of this news about it's probably Brian Bayo. He might be the one seed in that regard. So that that part does kind of suck. But it also is interesting because I know you're more of the advanced stats guy than I am. And I'm trying to get more into it this year. I'm I'm opening myself up to learning more about the the Fort Borbzorp and all of that. But with Brian <laughs> Bayo, he's one of the top guys that the stats I've always gone off of do not tell the story at all. Like you you really need advanced stats to know what Brian yeah. Bayo is capable of. And I, I Red Sox stats, which I've obviously we're well aware of that account. It's my favorite account on Twitter. Um, had a great stat about all the pitchers. I, I forget what it, he was basically. Essentially, it was Bayo was the most unlucky pitcher like in baseball last year that pitched X amount of innings innings in terms of a, a batted ball, like weak contact that would land for a hit. I think he had the most in Major League Baseball. So that sign means something that really matters. The fact that he's had hitters looking silly and established guys, too. That was one of my favorite parts of last season. We had very few things to be excited about. The fact that Brian Bayo made legitimate hitters look silly. I'm like, all right, maybe this guy could be, you know, the next big thing. I'm sick of the Pedro comps. But um, yeah, not <laughs> hearing that news wasn't great. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's so early. It's mid-February and and these guys are are finally getting back into the, the swing of things. They're going to get a little dinged up here and there. That's all part of getting, you know, ready for major league play. But um, yeah, he's a guy that they're, they're going to desperately need to be good or else. I mean, my biggest concern, I'm curious of yours, but my biggest concern is definitely the rotation. I don't, the amount of question marks, you know, from top to bottom and now add in a Bayo, you know, uh, sort as question mark. Like you never really know what you're going to get uh, from a sale, from a Kluber, from a Paxton. You want Bayo to be a guy that's like, don't worry. Like you got me, like you, you're not, you don't have to worry about me. At least I want to get to that point with him. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of the rotation and just in terms of like 
it's one of these things where you look back through recent Red Sox history, and of course they've won four World Series, but how many like recent homegrown starting pitching prospects have they had? Like, who's the last great one? You got to go back to like Lester. Lester? Yeah, Lester. Yeah. Yeah, because like Buckholtz, you thought it could be Buckholtz, and then he kind of he had that one great year, but they only made like I don't know, like thirteen starts because he ends up getting injured. He had his moments, of course, like really early on the no hitter, but. Then you really even like Erod, who was a solid pitcher. He came from Baltimore in that Miller trade. So I was just hoping to like see this guy. And I look, I, I'm not panicking over it either. But he's like saying, oh, he's just throwing a bunch of a bunch of breaking balls. Maybe throw less breaking balls in your bullpen. <laughs> like it, it is cool too. Like how about last year um, where Cora said Rich Hill told was teaching him how to throw a curveball like in the dugout, like in one in like during a game that obviously neither one was pitching. And then like he just busted out the next game. So I, I, I'm I'm cool with uh, seeing a lot of Bayo this year, but they, this need, rota- and they need to. Right. They need yeah. to. They, if they don't have a lot of Bayo, this rotation's kind of screwed. And I, you don't want to put that much on a young guy. But that's what Himes put together here with this rotation. Right. Like the, yeah. the guys that you have that you're going to have to rely on are huge question marks, like, for again, from top to bottom. So if Bayo's not there and he's not available, we have a real potential concern of having the same thing as last year with the Boston Woo Sox. And I don't want that again, just from a sanity standpoint, right? Because we watch all these games. You, yeah. like me, we're 162 game guys, for better or worse. Yeah, and they got I'm us. just talking, forget the fan thing. I'm just talking sanity. I don't want to do that again, where you got the Winkowski's and Seabold and all these guys and Cutter Crawford to his credit was really good for most of the season. But yeah, um, you just can't have that again. And Bayo is going to be a big part. His health is going to be a big part of avoiding that. Yeah, I'm glad we don't have to see Seabold again because that guy, he was scared against the Blue Jays, like legitimately scared. That was embarrassing. But I'm with you. Crawford was good when Kowski started off great. And I'm like, oh, this this is uh, this is nice. And then he just absolutely sucked. I Talk mean, about that... some of the quotes from him too, right? Oh he yeah, he came in like like he was the best pitcher in the league. I'm like, yeah. yo, pump the brakes, dude. He was ripping Wrigley Field. I'm yeah. Like, oh, it's like your second start. Like, what what are you <laughs> doing, buddy? Yeah. But he he didn't give a damn. I do. There is a level of like, and Bayo, his presence, like you mentioned, has this a little bit, right? Yeah. Of like, no, f you, I'm gonna strike you out, and I love that. But he's also not then going into the clubhouse and being like, I'm going to I mow these guys down. They all suck. That's kind of the vibe that yeah. Winkowski was given off. And then he tailed off, you know, the more. Yeah, what what is had. it? He, what did he call Wrigley stock standard? Is that what it was? He called yeah, it. I think stock- so. And he like doubled down too. like he really this guy had it out for Wrigley. I, I've never seen anyone that's gone into a park and wanted to make it clear in the post game. Yeah, this place sucks and I, I need you to know about it. So I, yeah. I thought that was a little funny. Can't imagine but, uh, what he, can't imagine what he thinks of the trop. I mean, geez, you hate Wrigley <laughs> that much. I would like, I would have gotten it with that, right? Wouldn't yeah, that have I made mean, more sense? Like that is a dump. Yeah, that is an absolute dump. So that, and the thing that aggravated me about him is like, dude, can you miss a bat every once in a while? Like he was allergic to missing bats. I mean, at some point, like I get it's great to pitch the contact at a ton of ground balls, which he did, but at some point you got to be able to get a swing and miss, and he could just never do that. So you mentioned the questions with the rotation. Obviously, Kluber's an older guy, more of an innings eater type guy at this point in his career. This would have been a great signing like six years ago. I mean, that would have been yeah. awesome to have him and Sale and Paxton in the Oof. rotation together. 2017, forget about it. Would have been yeah. incredible. Yeah, this team would have won like 110 games. Would have broke the record from the 18 team. But yeah. so you look at it in terms of the rotation. The guy that I think is going to have the best season, and this isn't like going on at a big limb, is Sale. Because I look at Sale and... I know it was like a very small sample size, like a teeny sample size last year, but his velocity was up. Like he was sitting with his fastball just under 95. He was at 94.9. 
in 2021, he's in the 93s. He's in the 93s in 19 when he started to get those injuries. You have to go back to 18 when he had that unreal season when he's over 95 miles an hour. The other thing is Cora mentioned that last year he thought that he had the feel for his change at back, which he didn't have two years ago. So he couldn't pitch to righties. I mean, they were hitting like 444 off his changeup, right? He just never got the feel for that thing. And I know like maybe I'm going to hate myself in two weeks for saying this because he's going to fall off a bike or whatever it is. But I really feel like I'm not saying we're going to get Chris Sale 2018, Chris Sale 2017, but I'm starting to feel like we may get 85% of what Chris Sale was. I mean, hey, I'm hopeful, right? Like if you if you get that, then you're in a much better position. But we've mentioned this before uh, heading into this year. Anything you get from him feels like a little bit of a bonus, right? And the fact that he's going to be ready to go helps like that. That matters. We didn't really know initially if he'd be ready to go. Part of me just it's like I I don't want to get fooled again. I think that's what it is, right? I think Red Sox fans are like, nah, you're going to have to show me because all these quotes are great. Don't get me wrong saying I, I haven't earned this contract and I feel bad and I owe it to these guys. That's all great. But at the end of the day, you got to be out there. You know, like I, availability is the the best ability is a Chris Sale line now because he's got to be out there and willing to help this team and able to help this team and not fall off a scooter, a bike, whatever it is. So it's hard. I have Corey Kluber as my guy that I think has the, the best potential to be their top starter, which is kind of scary to say out loud. Corey Kluber at this point, <laughs> I think might be their best starter in the rotation. But a lot of that has to do with him coming off a 30 start season and um, more just fingers crossed that he stays healthy this year. So uh, with sale, yeah, it would be great. Also, let's be real. It would be great for him to have that clubhouse presence and back it up on the mound and not just be the guy that remember in, you know, 18 and 17, what I was capable yeah. of doing. It would be nice if he could also, he could go out there seven shutout and then be the mentor for Bayo and these other guys. It adds a different layer when you're part of the team instead of just have the Red Sox jersey on because you signed a deal three years ago and, and you just happen to still be around. Those are just way, way different things. So um, I'm hopeful. I, I'm glad that you said that because now I'm like, all right, but Barrett said it. So hopefully it happens. Like I, I needed <laughs> someone to say it, that they think Chris Sale's going to have a big year because I haven't really heard much of that, you know, leading up to this. So ideally he's, you know, able to t- how many starts? What 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 start total would get you excited? I me, it's twenty five, but I think that's I think really that's a good number. Okay, yeah, I think that's a good number. I think twenty five is a good number. I'm really optimistic. I, I am. I, the one thing I will say though is like I don't know what like, you know how he like completely changed his diet a couple years ago. Yeah. Like he like he cut out sugar. Talk about and all a guy this. that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, like he stopped. 80. He stopped drinking. Like he stopped drinking. He he stopped like um eating sugar and like fast food and all this stuff. He said he just like never thought about his diet before. I, I would advocate going back to the old diet because in the old diet, you never got hurt like your whole career. <laughs> yeah. And then you had the new diet and now you're getting injured again. So I would advocate going back to that. Bring right, the fast food back. Devers, by the way, he's a guy. Does Does anyone look more out of shape than Devers every spring training? And it doesn't even matter because no. he's going to he's just going to wake up and hit 35 homers every year. But they had a uh, the Red Sox had tweeted a video out. I'm like, God, he always looks so big when he shows up to yeah. spring training. But I genuinely don't even care because it's Rafael Devers. But again, I, I remember seeing an image of uh, what was it? Somebody tweeted this out. I think it was like three spring trainings ago. And it was Rafael Devers. It, might, it must have been 19. It was right before 20, obviously, with the, the pandemic. It was him uh, opening the door in his boxers, like getting a Domino's uh, pizza. <laughs> it was like getting <laughs> delivered to him. And the kid's like, yo, I got to take a picture. And he's looking at him like, oh, God, this is probably going to go viral, isn't it? But um, no, credit to Rafi. He can just, you know, show up and and he puts the work. And I'm not acting like Rafi doesn't. But uh, maybe Chris Sale and Rafi got to start hanging out a little more, have some pizza and, and get back to good. Yeah, it makes sense. Why not? So 
I want to get to Whitlock because it's interesting, right? I mean, this guy, we know he's one of the best relievers in Major League Baseball. We saw it for a year and a half. And so now he's going to be in the rotation, which we saw a little bit of last year. Second time through the order really struggled. OPS against was over 900. But the thing I look at with Whitlock is I felt like last year it was sort of unfair to him, like the situation he was put in, right, where you understood the spot start that he needed to make in Toronto because of the situation with Tanner Houck. So you understood that. But my whole thing was, why did they keep him in the rotation, right? Like at some point, that decision should have been made quicker. It came after he went on the IL. And so for this year, I don't have an issue with this. Like if you're going to start him in the rotation, I'm fine with it to find out if he can be a starting pitcher because you know you have an elite level reliever. But I just hope like this year compared to last year, like if they do have to make the transition, it comes sooner rather than later. But at the same time, you kind of have to give him some rope, right, to find out if he's a legitimate starter. And I believe based on the stuff and based on the makeup of the guy, we know how intense he is. I think he can do it. I just wonder, how do you weigh having an elite reliever and say he's a mid-rotation guy? Like, what's more valuable? Yeah, I mean, it's I've caught myself with this a few times. He's only made nine starts. So yeah. I, I think we we've already pinned him as like, this is what he is. as a We don't know what he is as a starter. We really don't. So we've kind of gotten ahead of ourselves with that a little bit. Um, I know the ERA is whatever, 415 as a starter. And I think low twos as a reliever. But I, I, this is now a necessity thing, right? It comes back to you're going to need him in the rotation uh, versus what you had uh, last year. That's not here anymore. And, you know, of all the Walker, they're gone. Those are your top two guys. And a season where you only won 78 games and those guys are now not in the rotation. You need Whitlock to fill some of those innings and ideally be able to adjust to that role, get used to it. Like you said, it was just noticeable that it wasn't the same second time, third time through the lineup. Third time, they barely even he barely even saw a third time through the lineup. So that wasn't yeah. even that common. But um, I'm personally just as a see, it's tough because I, I look at it both ways, right, where, you know, there's a a hole for him in the rotation that would make the most sense logically but that when he was really cooking as a reliever, oh, it's such a great feeling to have the guy that comes in and just shuts it down. And you just know is not going to give up a run. It was so weird when Whitlock would get taken deep. I don't know. Yeah. I'm actually genuinely curious how many reliever home runs he's given up 11. That's actually way more than I would have thought. But granted, 68 relief appearances in his career. But it just never happened. Like he nobody really took him deep ever. And when it happened, it was very surprising. So. I don't know. I, I I struggle with it because you've seen the reliever version of him. You know what he's capable of. But at the same time, you know, I think when we're going over the debate of who's going to be the best starter, Whitlock's got to be in the ro- in the discussion, right? He's got to be in the discussion as best guy in your rotation at the end of the year. And if we're comparing Bayo and Whitlock, why does my gut tell me that one of them's going to have a great year and one is going to have a, a disappointing year? I just I don't. This is a complete based <laughs> off of nothing thing. <laughs> but I, I genuinely think that if it's like, look at it right now, who who would you say at the end of the year is going to obviously have had the better season? I would lean Whitlock. And this isn't based off of any tightness that Bayo's had. It's I don't core has made it seem like that's not really an issue. I would lean Whitlock just based solely off the fact that he's had a little more experience on the team. Forget it in the rotation, whatever. And he just seems like a guy that if he can be fully healthy, then he'd be more productive over the course of 162. But I am curious who you think would have a better season if you had to guess right now. I'm going to say Bayo, just because I just believe in the stuff. That I'm, like, I think Whitlock yeah. is like the safe, like, I guess I'm answering that wrong. Like, I feel like Bayo's got the higher upside this season, but 
Whitlock's, you know, Whitlock's floor is high. Like, I think Whitlock's going to be at the very least solid. So I guess I'll change my answer on the spot there. I'll go with Whitlock over Bayo. It was a tough call, right? Isn't it a tough it is. call? Yeah, it is. Like right it, now without without because the sample sizes are both small. So you're you're yeah. going to have to guess kind of either way. But as it stands right now, I'd, I'd probably lean Whitlock. And I just, you know, I base too much of my opinions on a gut feeling, but it is what it is. I think a lot of us do that. I genuinely think one of these guys is going to be great. And the other one, we're going to enter 2024. Like, well, we know he's capable, you know, despite what happened this past season. I just really feel like that's where we're going with these two guys. But hey, hopefully I'm wrong. And they both have two like filthy pitches. I mean, you look yep. at Bayo, he's got the changeup, he's got the sinker. And with Whitlock, it's his two seamer, his fastball, and he's got his nasty changeup. So they both have like elite level two pitches that are elite, which is, I mean, it's obviously awesome. Just if they can manipulate through the lineup two, three times. All right. So I want to get to this. I find this interesting. So it's kind of like a general thing of, hey, is Alex Verdugo good or not? Okay. Because (laughs) you look at his numbers last year, they're all down. Now we found out that he was dealing with a bunch of different injuries throughout the season. I thought it was encouraging that Cora said the, and Cora called him out after the season last year. Like we need more from Verdugo. He said the other day, and you could tell Verdugo does look like he's in better shape. He said, step one, he checked that box physically it's a lot different. So the defense, we saw that slipped. You look at any of the metrics, the defense slipped. And to me, I wonder what we get this year, because one thing that always irritates me about Verdugo, great bat to ball guy, always hits good pitching. I mean, every like it comes up with massive hits. Go back to that Yankees extra inning game this past season, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Had a couple of big hits. So he he can hit good pitching. He's one of the best guys on the team handling high velocity. But the thing and doesn't strike out a lot. The thing that aggravates me, everything is on the ground. So since he came here in 2020, his ground ball rate is at 48.2%, 20th highest during that stretch in all of Major League Baseball. So almost 50% of his batted balls are on the ground. And if you look at it, his best month last year was August. He hit 330 and he had an 884 OPS. His ground ball rate was down to 33.7%. So he's actually elevating the ball and look, he got the results. And yeah. I will acknowledge like everybody points to the expected stuff, right, Steve? Like he's one of the unluckiest hitters in baseball. So last year on grounders, he hit 222. Bogarts hit 343. So because he's a ground ball guy, like he'll probably get helped because of the shift rules. But I just feel like this is such a massive year for him. Next year will be his final year of arbitration. And he's 27. Like he's not a young guy anymore. Like it's sort of feels like to me, if he doesn't have a breakout season, then this is probably his last year here with the Red Sox. Yeah, I think you mentioned the the difference in the ground ball batting average between Bogey and Verdugo. What's one of the biggest differences? Bogey busts his ass out of the box. There was a few guys yeah. in the Red Sox over the years that are quicker to right after the contact going all out down to first base. Not to get on Verdugo's case for that, but there are certainly times where you're like, ah, oh, man, that replay doesn't look great on him. Uh, yeah, he dogs it. That. He dogs it a little bit. And not, not all the time, but you notice it, especially in Boston. You'll notice it even if it happens a handful of times versus, uh, you know, Bogarts, who was constantly going all out uh, every single game of the season. So with Verdugo, it's tough because you feel like you always, the stat, like what you're watching feels like it should look better on the stat sheet a lot of yeah. times. And yep. so I, I like him. And we we started the Alex Verdugo fan club. Uh, just a little side thing to get us through some of these seasons that have been tough. But you, the thing you love most about him is the intensity. And that, to your point, he rises to the big moments. And partially, I think that had to do with the season last year. I, I, I think the fact that how many games last year didn't really matter. It felt like more than ever. I, I can't remember a season, even 19. I know we remember 2019 as being like a real down year. 
they were in it for most of the season. They they were genuinely in the race for most of it. Now, was it in the race to get into the wildcard game? Sure. But they still had more competitive games than than 2022. So right. I think for Verdugo, the tough part for me is that he shouldn't need Alex Cora to call him out. He shouldn't need the line of like, hey, we expect more from you for him to show up. And I, and I you might have just said the quote, but what was he had the line of like, I forget the exact word, but he essentially said he was pissed off by that core line and that it was the the final straw yeah. of of like the motivation he needed. And I'm like, come on, man, you shouldn't. That shouldn't have had to be the final straw. Like yeah. if you really need that to get going, that's a whole nother discussion. So I, I like Verdugo a lot. I think, you know, spring training reminds me of like NFL players when they've had a couple of months to like rest up and they say some of the dumbest things possible of what's going to happen in that next season. It's like, please, like you're not you're not winning the next three Super Bowls. So I, I think Verdugo right now can say all the right things and he can say, oh, I'm motivated and I'm pissed off. And to his credit, he did come into to camp looking better. He looks like he's in better shape. But what happens when it's, you know, late April, early May and you're slumping a little bit? Does Cora's line from a year ago really matter at that point? you got to be able to motivate yourself and have yourself in a position to really matter for this team. And he's going to have a lot of chances. Where would you think he's in the lineup? Like six, seven, probably the set. Like, yeah, he should be in I, that spot. Yeah, I would say there. somewhere in that range. It's going to be interesting, like how they do it, because Cora mentioned the other day, like he wants to separate Yoshida and Devers, which means yeah. that that means probably Rafi's not hitting in the two hole, which is his best position in the lineup. Like now you want your best hitter in the two hole. So and I, I feel like hitting cleanup now is more valuable than hitting third in a lineup just because how often do you come up and there's nobody on base in the first inning when you're hitting third? It's just like RBI opportunities that aren't there for you. So yeah. I, it'll be interesting to see how Cora figures this whole thing out. But yeah, somewhere in that range, sixth, seventh range, because if Devers and Yoshida are going to be in the top four, that means it's probably going to be two other righties. So at the earliest, he'd probably hit fifth, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, probably hit at the earliest fifth, which, which may be good for him. I mean, honestly, it may be good for him to hit in that range. Well, he, I think last year of Red Sox players, I forget the exact amount. It was like with that batted with 400 guys on or 300 guys on. And this is another Red Sox stats gem. But Verdugo was the best hitter on the Red Sox with X amount of players on base last year. And yeah. it feels like it. It feels like he is. He really has big moments. There weren't many last year for the, the team, but it seemed like Verdugo was right in the middle of it whenever it happened. So I just wish he took things a little less personally. I know him and his brother, Chris, um, they're intense. And Chris Verdugo kind of rides for Alex on Twitter because I don't think Alex is on Twitter, but Chris yeah. is just like quote tweet people and be like, no, it's actually like this. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do like that intensity. But at the same time, it's like Doogie's good. Doogie's a good baseball player. Is he great? No. Does it suck that he has to get tied to the Mookie thing? Yes, because I, I feel like if that element was different, right? If us as Sox fans and just Sox followers didn't look at it as like, oh, well, this is the best thing you have left from Mookie. I think we'd view him completely differently as someone that can genuinely help this team win games. But instead, there's a big portion that ties it to Mookie and constantly looks at it as like, oh, he's not even close. Yeah, like, obviously, he's not even close. He's not Mookie Betts. No one is. But let him be himself in that six or seven spot in the lineup. Hopefully Duvall's on, Turner's on, Devers is on, and he can drive those guys in. And it's going to matter a lot if they don't start 10 and 19 like last year. If you can be motivated at the start of the season and you're actually in playoff position out of the gate, that helps too. Yeah, and I know he's banged up at the beginning of last season, but he's been a slow starter too, which obviously he has. Yeah, isn't the doesn't best help. thing. <laughs> that no, that, help. that yeah. certainly doesn't help. But that's a great point. I never thought about it that way. If just like 
Jeter Downs had turned out to be like a stud. Then it's like, okay, Verdugo's like an everyday player, and this was like the jewel of the trade. Or the same thing could be said about if Connor Wong was a stud. Like if one of those guys you traded for, and unfortunately for Heim, it didn't, it clearly didn't work out. But if one of those guys is like a stud prospect, it'd be different for Verdugo. All right. So this is actually a good transition because you mentioned the runners in scoring position with Verdugo. So I was looking at some of the Turner numbers because originally I was bummed out they didn't get a Brayu, and especially when we found out like, hey, this was their number one target outside the organization, and they come up short. And look, in all likelihood, uh, Lou Merloni made this point with me. He's like, well, in all likelihood, he was going to go to Houston if the money was similar because he knows like that team just won the World Series. He's an older player now, wants to get there. So I understood it from that perspective, but I just felt like, okay, if he's your number one target, be similar in the price range, and they weren't. But some of the stuff with Turner that I like is. So from 19 to 22 on base percentage is 25th in baseball strikeout rate is 37th. So he doesn't strike out high contact guy. So, and we know JD will strike out. And if you're going to look at splitting up Yoshida endeavors, like I'd really think about Turner in that two hole, 295, two against righties for his career, 839 OPS against righties. So he hits righties and he hits lefties. Maybe I just like underrated Turner when they first signed him because I was looking at Abreu, but then you look at, you mentioned the runners in scoring position. So 47 players that had at least 150 plate appearances last year with runners in scoring position. JD was 44th in RBIs out of 47 with 46. Turner, 69 RBIs. He was 10th out of that group. And then you look at the strikeout rate. JD was 25.7%, which was 42nd out of 47. Turner's 13%, the eighth best. So he's going to put the ball in play with runners in scoring position. He was really good with runners in scoring position. He doesn't strike out. Like, I really think this is a nice addition that Heimblum made, and maybe their most underrated signing of the offseason. I think we all got so stuck on the he's 38 thing that nothing else seemed to matter, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, he's what are you doing? I was 38. And in fans' defense, a lot of these one-year, two-year additions are in their mid to late 30s. So, like, that that's a real thing, and I understand that that's not necessarily who you want to be bringing on to try to, you know, revitalize your team. But, yeah, if you do any of the deep dives in Justin Turner, like, it – he definitely surprised me in terms of how productive he was. And I don't know if it's because you can kind of fall into fifth, sixth, seventh most important player on that Dodgers team with how stacked they are. I think that probably right. had something to do with it. But I was impressed with how much he's played in the field the last few years, considering his mid to late 30s. Like, I yeah. think that's I, I got in a useless Twitter argument with somebody over the fact that Justin Turner can definitely fill in in these positions if you need him to. Is he going to be your main DH? Likely, but he's still capable of playing in the field. Now, when he came over here, I think people immediately jumped to that first base thing, which is strange because he hasn't done that in seven years. So I, I do want to pump the brakes a little bit, and I can't just assume he's going to back up Cassis or who knows with Bobby Dahlbeck. I don't even really want to talk about Bobby Dahlbeck. But, Dude, I thought um, he existed. I did too. They, you just mentioned you know, <laughs> Sox social team is posting all these, and they're doing a great job. They got a lot of great mic'd up stuff, and they're crushing it so far in spring training. But they got Bobby in there. I'm like, right, he's <laughs> Bobby's on, he's the, on team. the team. <laughs> I didn't even know, but... uh no, I mean, you know, you you dive into any of Turner's numbers. I think his last five seasons, OPS plus, like 128. He's a guy I love batting average because I'm a loser. And he he's never below like 275, 280. Like he's always a guy in the 280s, 290s, 300. Um, you know, to your point, doesn't strike a lot, out a lot, gets on base, is going to drive guys in. And I, I think the part that sucks is that he's not, that it's maybe one year, right? This might end up being a one-year thing when you need guys that are going to be, okay, it's like you sign Devers. Now, who's going to be here with them and who's going to be a guarantee in the lineup for a couple of years to build that? Oh, watch out. The Sox got, you know, when you think of the 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 spring training program, right, that they put out there, 
who are the guys that have their arms folded? Like, watch out for us. Right yeah. now, it's just Rafael Devers. It, yeah. It's it's just Devers, and I Kike will put himself on there. He'll be like, make sure I'm here for this photo shoot. But um, Turner could be one of those guys, and and I and a lot of other people care about clubhouse stuff, and he seems like a really good clubhouse guy. Yeah. No complaint. Like the way that the Dodgers sent him off. I pay close attention to that. How does the guy get treated by the fans and the players when he's no longer with his former team? And Turner had this outpouring of love and and tweets and mentions from, you know, players, fans and everybody in that Dodgers, uh, you know, territory. So I think it's a really good signing. I, I think it's somebody that uh, they desperately need. Could he be a 40 doubles guy? Maybe uh, last year, the Red Sox surprisingly almost had four guys over 40 doubles, which I think kind of went under the radar. but. Uh, two of those are are Xander and JD, and they're not here anymore. So you're going to need somebody like Turner to give you a little more pop and and be somebody that's on base to be driven in by Duvall and, and Verdugo. Yeah, and I do like the bring in both Yoshida and Turner. Yoshida will walk like crazy, and well, yeah. the strikeout numbers will go up a little bit, but he's still going to be an elite bat-to-ball guy coming over from Japan. He'll strike out a little bit more. It's Major League Baseball, so it's going to be a little bit different for him. But I do yeah. like the fact that you got him at the top of the lineup that'll walk. Turner It's going to be an absolute pest. Having those guys like in front of Rafi, I think it's a much better setup than they had last year. Now, unfortunate about the story news, and you would have liked to see him on the field, but unfortunately, that's where we're at right now with Trevor Story. How, Hopefully- differently, how differently do you feel about this team if the story news didn't happen? Like how much of an uh, impact do you think that would have made on how you view this this team? I don't think that much, honestly, because of the Duvall signing. Now, if Story yeah. was healthy and they got Duvall, I'd feel a lot there. I'd be like, oh, okay. So now you got Duvall, you have Story that we know can hit for power, Rathy and Cassis. Like I'd feel a lot better if they add. And look, maybe Story comes back this season. Who knows? Maybe he comes back for the tail end of the season. And I would encourage them if like they're in the hunt and this guy's close, like, I would push it because of the fact like, dude, you signed this. This is already going into the second year of this deal. Like I, I try to get him out there if you think that he's going to be able to contribute at the end of the year. All right. So, by the way, you all in on the uh, Cassis thing. I mean, this guy is confident as hell. He's got he's sunbathing his first game in Major League Baseball. And then he's got like he's painted his fingernails red. Like I don't, yeah. this guy, he's out of his mind. <laughs> One thing I love about Cassis and I, I wish it was just Cassis. I wish we could all just agree it's pronounced Cassis. But Casas is that his Twitter feed is hilarious. I don't know if you've seen some of the tweets, yeah. but they are genuinely funny. He's like, you never know how bad a song is until you show it to somebody else and they listen to it. I'm like, what is this? this is when this guy's getting ramped up to get ready for the season. This is what he's tweeting out there. I'm saying it because I love it. Like, I, I'm yeah. not even calling it out. Like we for I, the ITM uh, podcast feed, we'll just do these graphics with his tweets and just Photoshop him into the stuff he's talking about. Like he could have one being like, you know, pizza's good, but it, it can be so much better sometimes. And I'm like, this guy's brain, I would just love to see the inside of this guy's brain and the thoughts that are going through there. But um, I'm all aboard the the Casas hype train. I, I think he's somebody that I know we we talk about potential 30 home run guys. He has the potential to do it. Do I think he'll do it? No. But I think Fangraphs had him at around 18, which Feels about right, honestly, if you really I mean, it depends how many games he plays, right? If you had, yeah. had uh, projected his stats out last year, I think it would have been around 25 if he played a full season, which wouldn't have even made any sense because he still needed to develop in Worcester. But yeah, I, I think he's he's somebody that the confidence is really important. And that matters a lot at this level. We've seen guys fold that can't handle the pressure. And he's just such an interesting creature. I, I don't think they've had a, a Tristan Casas in a long time in terms of got some like Damon vibes to him. We're like, what is in his head? What's what's yeah. going through there? But that's not a bad thing necessarily. 
the fact that you can just go out at Fenway Park and hit a bomb and be like, yeah, that's what I do. And I, I think that actually matters a lot, especially at a position that was such a pain in the ass last year. Whoever they put it first. I mean, Franchi, the Franchi thing just sucked. Man. Oh, I, my God. I felt I bad not, for the guy. I did, I legit, too. It got it got yeah. to the point where it's like, oh, man, this is really bad. Um, but, yeah, I, I think Casas is going to matter a lot to this team. And ideally, he can stay healthy and, and get the average up a little bit. He's what, 197 last year. And, um, you know, I just I love his eye, though. I love, you know, that he can draw walks and he's disciplined at the plate for his age. A lot of upside with Tristan Casas. I know the only guy that walked more after he made his debut was Aaron Judge from a percentage standpoint. This guy, he spits I didn't know on that. everything. That's a, that's a fun fact right there. See, this, yeah, this he... is my favorite thing about Brian Barrett. You just you always got <laughs> you got an endless bag of stats and facts <laughs> that I think is just unparalleled in this market. That's a great fact right there. I might even steal that. I think I'm yeah. stealing that. one. Hey, feel free, you. man. Yeah, feel yeah. free. Um, yeah, that's it's called being a nerd. It's not really like, you know, it's, it's a, <laughs> like it's something to be happy about. I just spent all my yeah. time looking at this stuff. Up. It's a combination of being a nerd and having OCD. It's a beautiful combination. So. Oh, so I did want to get back to Cassis for a second here, because the home run thing, obviously, that was a massive issue for this team last year. They were 20th in home runs. The Boston Red Sox were 20th in home runs and they play at Fenway Park. I mean, they just could not hit the ball out of the ballpark. And look, I know Bogarts was dealing with an injury, but remember he went forever in between home runs. And when he finally hit it, like, remember how pumped he was? He had the bat flip. He threw work. the bat down. Yeah, he that just was threw funny. it. Yeah, that was <laughs> hilarious. So when you look at this lineup, Rafi, I believe is a lock to go over 30. I, I just feel like, all right, if he plays in, a, he's a 27 last year and he missed a bunch of time. He only played in 141 games. Duvall two years ago when he was healthy, he had 38 home runs, the same amount that Rafi did that season. And I know you said you don't feel like Cassis will get close to that but do you think they have two guys that go over 30 do we get Duvall and Rafi over 30 I think that's you're starting at the right number right because I I think some people with wishful thinking will say hey could they get three over 30 I'm like all right we're probably pushing it at that point um we have a phrase on our podcast water balloon over your head instead of gun to your head because gun to your head so intense it's like why is this gun in my face like water balloon over your head I would say Devers is the only guy that gets over 30 but that doesn't mean they don't have guys that can do it. Like I'm more just saying betting wise, I would take, I would take Rafi 30 plus uh, Duvall would probably be the next guy up, you know, that, that could get over that number. Could Turner hit 30 bombs. Is that mm. really, that's, it's an aggressive prediction, but I'm I think he's going to hit a shit ton of doubles. I think he's going to yeah, hit a shit ton yeah. of doubles. And, he, and they kind of need him to right in the position he's going to be. in, they need him to be a guy that can replace JD's doubles, he, whatever JD had a down year. Obviously we all know that, but he was still hitting a ton of doubles as he always does. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be just Devers. I, I would say Devers has potential, honestly, for a 40 homer season, uh, if things all go in his favor. And I remember a month ago, I was looking up the list, just had a, I, like, I'm sure you do as well. You just start looking up random Red Sox stats and just jotting them down in the notes tab. And I was thinking, where is Devers among Red Sox all time, you know, home run hitters, just home runs. They hit with the franchise. And if he has a 40 homer season, he passes Nomar, he passes Carlton Fisk. Dustin Bedroya, Xander Bogarts. He passes a lot of names in wow. franchise history if he has a 40 homer season. And not that he's going to look at that and be like, all right, I have to hit 40 now. But it's just, I we still look at him like he's a kid and he could pass some of the most important players in franchise history if he hits 40 bombs. So um, I'm, I'm hoping for that this year. I think that's probably going to be one of my like bold predictions. But outside of Devers, I think it might be tough. It might be tough to get another one over, over 30. Just based on, I mean, last year, you know, you alluded to it a little bit, but JD was their second home run leader was 16. Yeah. <laughs> you had, like, it was just 
It was so noticeable. And Ugh. a summer of like no Red Sox homers is a summer that just sucks. We need more bombs at Fenway. And I'm I'm glad they have guys that have potential to do it, but that's probably just going to be Raffy over 30. Yeah. And think about this story. It was tied with JD and he played at 94 games. That guy was tied for <laughs> second home runs on your team. Like, that's ridiculous. That's another thing that makes me sad about not having stories. I think he he would have been a candidate for this to get to the I 30 home runs. I would have said 30 for story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I think and, and he would have not to say that you understand the the expectation for you and that that then means results. That obviously isn't always the case. But I think there would have been, and you mentioned it, there would have been a lot of, okay, I got to start, I got to start earning my socks here. Like, I, I really got to start earning my pay and make sure that I'm a guy that they can rely on for the amount of, you know, years I'm going to be here on the contract. This would have been, that, that's why that news sucks so much. This would have been a really important year for Trevor Story uh, to kind of prove that he's not face of the team, but he could have been runner up to Rafael Devers. You know, if Sale gets yeah. hurt again. Who's the face of the team outside of Devers? Story had potential to be, and now he's going to be hurt. Yeah, and I just felt bad for him last year. Like, look, the, he didn't play well. We can all acknowledge that in terms of hitting. I mean, he was great in the field, but it's like he gets to spring training late. He signs late. He's dealing with all these injuries. Like, it, it wasn't his fault that the Red Sox gave him all this money, right? Like, the organization gave it out. Like, I legitimately felt bad for the guy at times. Like, remember that bullshit about, like, oh, he didn't talk to the media after the game. It's like, dude, he's in the cage, and he didn't know he had to talk to the media. Like, everybody made a huge deal about that, and I felt bad for him. Like, even Cora's, like, he was hitting. Like, he he didn't know. Like, nobody, like, that. that's on the PR team. Like, somebody should have told him, get up there, man. Like, I mean, and everyone's like, oh, he does, he's not facing the music. I'm like, that's that's not what happened. That actually didn't happen, but... Steve, before I let you go, because you're you're really good on this type of stuff. So I wanted to first rank the four World Series teams in order of mm. who you think the best team was to. I, I'm saying the worst, but they won a World Series. But you know what I'm yeah. saying. Best one through four. And then we'll do after that favorite teams out of that group. So. So, yeah, you're saying so on, on the so on the field one. Yeah. Through on four, the, and then. Yeah. OK. OK. Um, so to start, see, on the field is a little tricky for me. I would say 18 to lead it off just because that team was absolutely stacked. I know pitching wise, uh, you would have rather had some of the guys from 07, from 04, and maybe even Lester's version of, of 13. Um, but I would say 18 kind of has to be first based on how loaded they were. I put 07 second. Tell me if that's ridiculous. Is that ridiculous to have 07 in second on this list versus 04? I have them it's, second too. Okay. All right. Yeah. I was, they were I was a wagon. Going through. They were a wagon. Uh, 04 won more games. They won 98 games and still were the wild card team because the Yankees had 101 wins that year. Um, but it's still, it's hard for me when I hear so much negativity towards the 07 team. The 07 team gets dumped on all the time in terms of this discussion, the four titles. And I'm like, no, that that team, and for selfish reasons, it was like my senior year of high school. I remember skipping school to go to the, the um, Beckett game where he had... No, I skipped school to go to the Manny uh, walk-off game, which was like the best decision of my life. Um, then then got grounded for a month because I was like the last month that my parents <laughs> had like control over me. But that 07 team mattered a lot and they were loaded. They were absolutely loaded. That lineup was ridiculous. Manny didn't even have a super important year that year and they were still filthy. So I got them second. I got 04 third uh, and 2013 fourth. I'm still stunned yeah. that they were able to win the World Series. I, I think that I know. That 2013 ALCS doesn't really get discussed. Well, it, obviously, the Poppy Grand Slam gets talked about, but just how much the Tigers deserve to win that series doesn't really get talked about a lot. Like, they were definitely the better team, uh, but lost in six, and I, that rarely happens. I mean, they had Verlander and Scherzer like, in their <laughs> I rotation. Know. Like, I know. Just <laughs> entering their primes. 
I know. And, like, and Anibal Sanchez was filthy too. And, yeah. and had a no, no, like through seven in game one. So, um, yeah, I, I would go 18, 07, 04, 13 for talent, but for, I really enjoy it from the, how much you liked it because no one can come in and be like, Oh, well, technically the, the fit dip zip of like the 07. Yeah. It's like, this one's just preference. And it's, 04 has to be first. It's hard to have this discussion and not say 2004 is the most important team. It changed our lives. I mean, it literally allowed me to breathe as like a human, not be fully stressed every second of the day being like, is the rest of my life not going to have a World Series championship? So 04 has to be first. I got 2018 second because of how much it mattered for Section 10. The show blew up in 2018 and and it changed my career, you know, for the rest of my existence. So I, I got to say. Uh, 2018, that was a ton of fun. Still salty. I wasn't on a duck boat, but it is what it is. 2013 would be third based on what it meant to the city. This one was really hard, by the way. The 13 and 07, um, just because of what I already mentioned for 07, that mattered a lot. Um, but 13 was just like, I, it, it's a dream. 13 is a dream, man. It doesn't, I just can't believe that they at Fenway Park, the fact that that's the only one of these four, by the way, that, that ends up winning um, at Fenway is, is kind of cool. So I, I think 13's third and then 07. Sadly, is fourth, but very close. I, I I don't like the 07 slander. There's a lot of it. Yeah, and everything that went into 13 too, right? Like, this is our fucking city before the season. And that team, you know, in some ways, I've heard this comparison made. It's, they just went out there. They got a bunch of vets. It's like Napoli, Victorino. All these guys played well. They trade for Steve Pierce and it all. And Lackey had a good run, right? I mean, like, and nobody was really expecting. Well, I guess, no, Lackey was. Was that when Lackey had the good run? Yeah, in 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- you're talking 13, right? Yeah, he came back. He came back from the injury that season, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and didn't tip his cap. <laughs> I remember that <laughs> he was like, "F all y'all, y'all yeah. were dumping on me all year." Um, yeah, the so lackey I, thing's interesting. That's a he, he had a funny, strange. You don't career. hear that. You don't hear that name too much. But he's had an interesting on and off field career. Um, but yeah, he did matter a lot, and he got that win in in Game Six when they clinched. Yeah, he he had a strange run here. I, and I agree with you on the first list about the teams, the orders. I mean, the 18 team, they only lost three postseason games. I mean, that's I unreal. And should have I been mean, two. They, yeah, they should have right. swept the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. the the extra inning marathon. And it, Sale was so good that year before his injury. Like, I was looking back. Yeah. Sale that year had a 38.4% strikeout rate. Verlander was second at 34.8%. So he was closest to the guy eighth on the list than the guy that was in first. And Chris wow. Sale, and he was, I mean, Sale was so good. That year, and, and you had Mookie won the batting title. He won the MVP. He won the Gold Glove. JD hit like forty bombs. I mean, he JD was like, had an MVP season. He would have yeah. won the MVP if Mookie didn't exist that year. Yeah, yeah. legit MVP candidate. 07 was a wagon. I mean, I think people forget how deep that lineup was. Like Mike Lowell hit three twenty four that season. I he know. was he was incredible for them. And then I would put 04 third. I agree with you. And then thirteen would be last on the list. And then in terms of my favorites, I actually have eighteen was my favorite. Because okay. just like how good Mookie was and how unbelievably enter- like that was legit like the heyday of sale day like that was hey you're not missing the game like make sure you're home you got the TV on you're watching the game to see Chris Sale pitch and we hadn't had a pitcher like that since Pedro where it's like yeah. okay this is appointment television 
Then and I Pedro had... mentioned that too, right? Didn't Pedro mention that? Pedro's yeah. like, this is as close to me as it's been since me. I'm like, that's a baller <laughs> line right there. <laughs> yeah. That. So that team to me was just, I, I, I loved watching that team. Like they were such a wagon. They beat the shit out of everybody. And beating the Astros was very rewarding too. Like, cause they mm. had won the year. In prior. Houston, like, yeah, your season's yeah. over. And yeah, you beat the nice. Yankees and the Dodgers. Like, I mean, that was, and you had uh, Aaron Judge with the boombox. Remember like going by the clubhouse, oh, New York, New York. So yeah. that- that's number one for me. Oh, four, because like you were so heartbroken growing up in 03 when the Aaron fucking Boone like that was just like so rewarding getting back. There. And like, of course, how it happened. Three nothing. I mean, come on. David Ortiz with all the walk offs. I put 13 where you did. It was just magical, right? Like, how is this happening? Like you were waiting until wait, are they really going to win the world? They're going to win the World Series. It was just like and there was a lot of fun guy. Like, what was the song? Do you remember Victorino's walk up song? I forget yeah, what it was. It was uh, three, three Little Birds. Yeah. Yes, yes. With Bob Marley, yeah. Everybody would sing it, like, in the crowd. That, that was well, a they, very... What, what was the uh, the Alan Craig moment? That was game three, right? I believe that was game oh, yeah. three. That's, yeah. that's the last one that they lose in that series with Will Middlebrooks there. I've watched that replay, like, a thousand times. I still don't know if he intentionally put his legs up or not. For for the umps, I was about to say the refs, I'm in basketball mode. For the umps to uh, to call that in the moment, I, that's a ballsy call to just declare the game over because you're determining a player intentionally put his legs up to knock another player down. Alan Craig was on like one leg at that point. He could barely move. He's one of the yeah. slowest players of all. He's like Molina at that point. Um, Why? Did, I, I remember and they kept pitching I, Ortiz to that series. Matheny, it's like, no dude, sense. stop pitching to him. The dude hit 670. It's absolutely absurd what he was doing. And we've been able to talk to a couple of the players on that team since. And they're like, I, we were talking in the dugout of like why are they not walking him i that, that i don't understand but the thing that that sticks out with me in that series is that alan craig moment because i remember i was working at nesson at the time and i remember thinking is this going to be it is this really are they now going to lose the next two in st louis and not even come back to boston and lose the series because that's kind of what the mood was and a lot of Sox fans you can you have your your wishful thinking ones and then you have the i've i've been here for too long and i i kind of know how this goes even after the titles even after the titles, like seeing that 2013 team and how things went. Yes. Would it have been perfect for the Boston strong year to win the title, which they end up doing. But that part of your brain that had to kick back in after game three and be like, yeah, but they're, I don't think they're the better team and they weren't better than the Tigers. And this might be how it ends. But the fact that they don't lose another game after the Alan Craig moment shows how much just like pride they had. That team had so much like, no, we're going to win. And then they just actually did it. And it was a different guy every night. Gomes had a huge three-run bomb like that. That team was just fun to watch, and and we're not going to get a version of that, I think, ever again. But um, yeah, it's it's probably got to be last in terms of talent. But what a fun ride that was! That was awesome. Yeah, and it was the rare like good Ellsbury year. He stole forty bases, and he was good in the postseason, man. And then the Yankees signed him to that dumbass contract, so it worked what, what, out. What did Ellsbury had thirty-two bombs in twenty eleven, right? I'll still that is. Yeah, I think- one of the yeah, most I think that was 2011. Things. Yeah. 2011, where he's in the MVP run and they obviously the chicken and beer, they collapsed, but he had 32 home runs. I, of, of like the, the WTF stats, that might be my one of my top ones. How did Jacoby Ellsbury hit 32 home runs? That's just absurd. But maybe he had a corked bat. He might. I mean, every other year he averaged <laughs> like eight. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a Brady Anderson thing. They just jump right to 32. I'm like, how the hell is this happening? But. He probably would have got the MVP if they actually made the playoffs. But um, yeah, I 
They'll still show replays. I went to a game at the Trop last year. They have a whole section dedicated to that Evan Longoria walk-off homer. Not just like, Are you serious? I, I, of course you would expect they'd have something, but it's like the game 162 porch. It's like a whole patio where they do like the timeline of the events that night. I'm like, oh my God, this is really pathetic. But again, I say that to also say it's a Tampa Bay Rays. So they, there's only so many things that they can really celebrate. They got wild True. card banners and everything. It's It's pretty pathetic down there. Yeah, they can't even get the uniforms right. I mean, just go back to the old school, man. The, the D-Rays was great, yeah. right? Yeah. And if Make- I, I know they, they don't want the devil part. I remember going there in 2000, um, and they were like, no, we're the Rays. And it's like, that that's when they were seven years away from being just the Rays, because they didn't want the whole, it was a weird thing. It was like, they don't want the devil. I'm like, ah, okay, whatever. But those jerseys were way better. You can still have Rays and have a Stingray in the logo and kind of swoosh it in. I love that, like... That like teal purple jersey. They oh yeah. my god, those colors are so perfect, and it matches that area really well. They got to go back to those. Yeah, and maybe get a couple people in the crowd too. That would help them out next year. Yeah, maybe sell some tickets. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sell a few of those. <laughs> All right, that is Steve Brawl from the ITM podcast. Steve, thanks so much for the time, man. Really enjoyed it. And hey, I'm I'm looking forward to the season even more now, man. Like I'm ready to go. Oh, absolutely. We got to have you on ITM. You got to make your debut. I want to wait for the season because I want to. Okay. I know you're at we're at our peaks when we got like coming off of a game like coming off. I, you did way more than me. The post games. I still don't know how, how you did all those hours just by yourself. That mind blowing to be able to do that. Just talking into a mic with no one else there. Um, but yeah, we got to do that during the season. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we got a couple crazy callers on those shows, too. Yeah, a few. Just a few. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Steve. Great stuff, man. All right. Take care. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy, Steve Prawl. Always like chatting socks with Steve. All right, so make sure to get your emails into offthepike at gmail.com. We'll get to some of those emails on Tuesday, but I do want to get to a couple of voicemails. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hi, Brian. Joe from West Virginia. Love the podcast. What's not to like about Off the Pike with Brian Barrett? Sports talk for the soul. Got a soulful rendition entitled an ode to Kyan Bloom based loosely on the song Dirty Water by the Standells, down by the river, down by the banks <laughs> of the river, Charles. Oh, that's what's happening, baby. Now that's where you'll find him, chief of baseball operations for the Boston Red Sox. His name is Iam Bloom. Ba-dum, bum-ba-dum. Came from Tampa to Boston without a clue what to do. And nobody knew for sure about this guy, but perhaps like the brothers right, he just may fly. Why, that's my man, Kyam Bloom. Ba-dum, bum-ba-dum. Sign Trevor Story with a chance at fame and glory, but on the way forgot to sign a guy named Bogey too. <laughs> Whoops, surprise. Well, thanks a lot, I am Bloom. Ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, frustrated Red Sox Nation. Well, do us all a favor and take a hike off the pike and don't come back anytime soon. For the mind known as I am Bloom. I love that dirty water. You're the number one place, Boston. You're my home. P.S. As MLB spring training is about to get underway, I am what you are representing as a Boston Red Sox embark on the 2023 season, the 123rd for the storied franchise, and come opening day at Boston's venerable Fenway Park, which will be playing host to professional Major League Baseball for its 112th season. They call that tradition, so let's not fuck it up. <laughs> if you need some courage going forward, go right up the street to the Caskin Flagon on Brookline Avenue. Whiskey. It may not be the answer, but give it a shot. Lots of luck, Kyan. I'm pretty certain you're going to need some. <laughs> and Brian Barrett, 
Your coverage of the Boston sports scene is second to none. We appreciate your hard work and dedication and effort in doing such. Thank you. All right, Joe, that was great. Thank you for the kind words as well. Man, I love that song, and I like how you included Off the Pike in there, man. You worked that in, and I feel your frustration with Hein Bloom. It does really feel like his job's on the line this year. If the Red Sox don't make it into the postseason, you could really see the organization moving on from Heim. And you start to look at it going forward, too, is Heim's in a situation where he upgraded the bullpen, and this all looks great on paper, right? And you start to think about some of the other moves that I referenced that with Steve that I like, the Justin Turner signing and all that different type of stuff. But the results are going to be the results this year. You had a 2020 season, which was awful. And we said, oh, no big deal, COVID, whatever. 2021, your team was good. You made it to the ALCS. Last year, it was an unwatchable product by the end of the season. This year, you got to get back into the postseason. And I truly believe that if Heimblum, if this team isn't a lot better than it's like being projected to be, that Heimblum's going to get his walking papers because he can't have three out of four seasons be bad. And I mean, unfortunately for Heim, he's always going to be linked to the Mookie Betts. I mean, that's one of the worst trades we've ever seen. All right, who's up next? Hey, uh, Brian, it's uh, Josh in Somerville. Uh, I love the podcast. I think you're doing a great job and I uh, appreciate everything you're, you're putting out there for us uh, in Boston. Uh, I was curious, though, you know, what... what uh, precipitated the change to calling, you know, Doc Rivers, uh, Glenn Rivers. I know that Glenn is, you know, his, his birth name, but, uh, I looked it up and I couldn't figure out, I couldn't see anywhere where he had maybe asked, uh, the public to start calling him Glenn. I don't know if he asked you personally to start calling him Glenn. Uh, the only other outlet I could find that was doing it was, uh, Barstool, which is, uh, uh, problematic, um, you know, news outlet, uh, there and so um, I was just curious. I don't know. It kind of reminded me of uh, some old timers who refused to call uh, Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. They insist on calling him Cassius Clay. I uh, I know it's not his name, but uh, people call him Doc. He goes by Doc. People know him as Doc. And so I just was curious, like, what gave you permission uh, to call him Glenn, or what made you start calling him Glenn? And uh, should we all be calling him Glenn? Um, you know, I'd love to know. Thanks. All right. It's it's not. <laughs> I didn't think it was like that big of a deal in terms of uh, I just call him Glenn. I don't think he's like Doc. I think a Dr. J, right? Like Dr. J, like that's that's a guy that has the doctor nickname. Doc Rivers is like, I don't know. I just got so frustrated with Doc or Glenn, however you want to phrase it here at the end of his tenure here with the Celtics. Like, I feel like, first of all, he stumbled and I've heard Bill talk about this multiple times. He stumbled into the small ball lineup with Kevin Garnett at center. And it was basically Chris Bosh before Chris Bosh in Miami. When Miami really took off with that lineup with Bosh at the five, I just don't understand why he didn't dig into that more. Like, I felt like he played Kendrick Perkins way too much. And the other thing I would just say is, like, at the end, Doc basically quit on the team. He signed the extension with the team. He had to have envisioned at some point they were going to move on from Paul and KG. So right when they decide to, like, hey, let's rebuild, Doc wants out and they trade him to... The Clippers, which, I mean, it worked out for the Celtics. They ended up getting Brad Stevens, who was a good coach for a significant amount of time. And now he's a really good executive. So I guess in the long run, it worked out for the Celtics. But I just didn't like the way that things ended for Doc here. I really didn't. I didn't appreciate the way that he essentially quit on the organization. I get it. He didn't want to be part of a rebuild or whatever. But you sign an extension. What do you think was going to happen? You think Paul and KG were going to be here for this whole time? You were going to continue to be contenders? It just wasn't going to be the case. All right. So uh, that that's the Doc Glenn thing. It's it's not really that big of a thing. I just call him Glenn sometimes because sometimes I don't feel like calling him Doc. And that's why I come back to the playoffs. Like, I feel really good about the Philly matchup. Really good about the Philly matchup. 
Their coach blows more 3-1 series leads than anybody. And they have James Harden, the biggest choker in like postseason history of our era. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts as well to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.